Welcome to the Basketball Index Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor, and today we are talking about the state of the Grizzlies. Talking to Keith Parrish, he's the host of the Grits and Grinds Grizzlies Podcast, as well as the Fast Break Breakfast, covering all uh, everywhere NBA. Uh, Keith, how you doing and how you feeling about the state of the Grizzlies? Uh, first of all, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Uh, the state of the Grizzlies. I don't know if most people who like cover a team every day go through this roller coaster of emotions, but I feel like I've been up and down. I feel like my optimism was really high a while ago and maybe it was losing preseason games to teams that aren't predicted to be very good. I started being like, wait a minute, what if we're frauds? <laughs> so I don't know. Like I'm, uh, I, I, depending on the day, my optimism waxes and wanes. Okay, so last year, obviously, they have the huge breakout season. John Morantz, Oliver ESPN, Jaron Jackson Jr., Desmond Bain. I mean, everybody really, really takes a big step forward. What did it feel like going into last season, and what were the expectations then? Going into last season, the expectations were, man, it would rule if we could not be in the play-in. And I think nationally that the coverage seemed to be focused on, hey, the Grizzlies are being patient and maybe they're taking a step back because they traded away Jonas Valanciunas, who was so instrumental in them making the eight seed in the previous year. And they traded away their starter, Grayson Allen. And so maybe they're just being patient. They're going to grow internally and not make a leap forward. I was on the optimistic kind of front of that where I was like, no, our lineups this year are going to rule because we don't play Jonas Valanciunas and Grayson Allen anymore, because I was super obsessed with Brandon Clark and Jaron Jackson Jr. and with DeAnthony Melton. And so for me, the offseason was, hey, this is cool. We got rid of this crutch in Jonas Valanciunas, who like the team just basically depended on him to you know, grab every offensive rebound and put it back in. And it's like, no, we, we're now going to play what I thought were more fun lineups. So I was like, I think the Grizzlies actually got better, but I did not anticipate remotely that they would have the second best record in the NBA. It was stunning to me that they ended up with 56 wins. So just the answer to the question, like last year's expectations were, hey man, I think we can get the sixth seed. That would be really cool. Okay, yeah, that that uh, that is interesting because I, for me, I'm, I'm in San Diego. I'm very far away. The Grizzlies weren't on my radar. Obviously, they had some young, intriguing players. Um, but it's interesting to hear your perspective of, hey, you know, like we're, we're doing some things here. We're building. I actually kind of like the trade. Uh, that's interesting. But let's talk about John Morant for a second, because he's a guy uh, he, had a, he had a pretty good rookie year in our database. Uh, second year was was pretty darn good offensively and then takes the leap to he was almost 99th percentile in our O LeBron, which is just like our overall offensive impact. Obviously, just like dozens and dozens of highlights last year. What did you see in his jump from year two to year three? I mean, it, it also, that kind of blindsided me. I, I think maybe I'm a cynic or maybe I lean, I don't think of myself as being pessimistic, but I, I saw like even... NBA rank coming into last year where people were like, you know, John Morant is, I can't remember what he was. It was like John Morant's 15th in the NBA. And I was like, whoa, that's really high. Like, I, I didn't know, uh, like, is he already better than these guys? But then he proved that in fact he was. And yeah, he just became an every night guy where it was no longer these, 
you know, he'd had these moments before where he would score 35 or score 40, especially like like the play-in tournaments the previous two seasons where like he would be a 30-point-a-night scorer, and it just became more consistent this year. Maybe it was getting a center in Steven Adams, who when he got an offensive rebound, just gave it back to Jaw as opposed to putting it in the basket. <laughs> but he got more and more shot attempts. He, he was finishing at an unbelievable level. Like his points in the paint obviously led the NBA in points in the paint as a small guard, which is remarkable. It's just no one could keep him out of the paint. And he I think he got to the line more. And it's just like he learned, like, you know what? I can score basically whenever I want to. And you saw him night after night being like, I'm going to keep atta- applying pressure to the rim and keep getting there until someone turns me away. And most of the time, no one can turn him away. Yeah, and then I, I think something that that plays off that was so we have a playmaking uh, talent metric, and he was he was good the first two years, but like really jumped into like you know more the elite territory in the third year, and I feel like uh, that that ability to just get to the rack it it almost feels like every possession we talk about rim shot creation, which is another metric we have that he is uh, very very good at putting so much pressure on the defense and that leading to so many good things. And I think that really helped, you know, prop up his impact metrics. Yeah. So what goes into the all's playmaking, the impact thing? Like, cause I know he like his assist went down in year three, but it was just like, I know he, he kept creating. So like what, what goes into that number? So the playmaking stat is uh, broken into five things. So we just have passing volume. So how often you're, you're, you're moving the ball around um, passing quality, which like takes into account the, the quality of the looks the player is getting uh, efficiency, um, which is kind of like the, you know, like assist to turnover ratio. It's kind of like the next evolution of that. And then we have uh, versatility, like the, the different types of passes you are making on the court. Uh, and then the last one um, is just scoring gravity. Uh, and that one is weighted a little bit lower than the other ones, but just kind of the idea of like job. I, I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but I would imagine his, his scoring gravity is extremely yeah. high. Yeah, yes, <laughs> and, absolutely. Uh, you know, that can just help make windows larger, make you know players rotate over quicker to make the, maybe the pass easier. Uh, so uh, he, he is someone that uh, has been very good all three years in the uh, in our database. But but year three really took a jump. And uh, into that, like, really top, top tier playmaker. Right. And even watching it as a fan, I was noticing, like, his scoring numbers, I guess, per 100 possession, he was 39, over 39 points per 100 possessions. And I was, like, Jeez. just comparing that to, like, Allen Iverson. That's, like, basically <laughs> Allen Iverson's best season at per 100 possessions. And so, yeah, no, it's it, it's wild how he became this scorer, where I think, again, my ex- expectations were, this guy's going to be, like, a Kevin Johnson, John Wall-type scorer, 20 points per game or something. You know, obviously a highlight player and, and a guy who I think has a – uh, winning pedigree or those winning intangibles. I'm like, this guy's a leader. This guy knows how to play NBA basketball, knows how to get victories. But then he comes out and becomes, no, he's he's leaning towards a 30-point-per-game guy. This is an unstoppable score. I didn't necessarily an- anticipate that. Yeah, digging a little bit more, uh, just a little clarification. I brought up rim shot creation a little earlier. He was 100th percentile in the league in that. Um, <laughs> rim shot making, which takes into account how difficult your so- shots are. So he was 6th percentile in rim shot quality. So very, very difficult looks at the hoop. And he was 99th percentile in rim shot making. Um, so now we're talking. Yeah, because the problem is if you just look at like the raw field goal percentage at the rim, it doesn't take into account like the real heavy lifting he was doing. Uh, and then you take the the rim shot making, the rim shot creation, 
you, you basically put those together and that's how you get our finishing grade. And he was hundredth percentile in that. Not, not surprising. Um, yeah, but that matches the eye test. <laughs> I would say there's frequently like, how did he do that? <laughs> that does, that does pass the smell test. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, John Morant's a star. I, I think, you know, really, really great building block as a number one guy you can build around the next two guys. I want to talk about, I find really, really interesting. Uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. is going to miss uh, part of the season, right? Coming in, in with a foot injury, but he had a monster breakout year. He made our version of the uh, basketball index all defensive teams. Uh, what did you see from him uh, on the on the offensive end and the defensive end this season? So Jaron's been a it's been a weird career. It's been one where I feel like his rookie year he came in as a, a defensive prospect, like that was what he was touted for in the draft. But his offensive skills seem more developed his rookie year where he was making his three-pointers and he was beating guys off the dribble some. And you were like, wow, this guy's a very unique, I know the, the term unicorn gets thrown around, but he's just a very unique basketball player, the way he can score with his size. And also, by the way, he blocks shots. Oh, and he gets in foul trouble a lot. And then he was injured his second year. And then it was like kind of like, I don't know, it, it's been a little bit up and down. But last year, he really blossomed defensively where all of a sudden, oh, this is the promise of what we were told he was going to be. And, and you know, he uses his size, he uses his um, nimbleness, and he's just quick. And, like, he was getting a lot of steals, blocks, deflections, and he ended up leading the NBA in, you know, block shots. And you saw, like, all right, this is an elite defensive player, but weirdly, his offense was really uh, erratic at best. He shot a terrible percentage from three. So we saw like the breakout, like you said, on the defensive end. Now I think Grizzlies fans are hoping the dream is when he gets healthy, when he returns this season, can he pair that elite defensive play with improved offensive play that maybe close, more closely resembles what he did his first couple seasons? Uh, he's an interesting guy on the offensive end because he does take quite a few threes and there seems to be like zero hesitation out of him, which um, it can sometimes be a double edged sword, right? Like you have the bigs where you're like, man, I'd really like this guy to stretch it out, especially when they're younger. Where you're like, I want him to develop it. And then there's the thing of like, OK, well, we can't we can't be taking every three we we see at the three point line. What how do you kind of balance that for him in your head? Uh, kind of development versus is this the best shot for you to take as as much as you're taking it? Right. So I know the fan base, at least based on like social media and my timeline, when he misses shots, they're like, post up, like get the big guy, get him in the paint, get him touches. But it's like the way the, the Grizzlies are, just their roster construct, they need him basically to stand out there and launch threes yeah. and the way, the way jaw attacks the rim and jaw's not a very good three point shooter. They more so need the spacing. And like, I think we just hope that they'll just, those eventually go in. The funny thing is, you know, when you watch Jaron Jackson jr. Play one of the more bizarre aspects of his game is his shot is awkward looking. Mm -hmm. And like, for me as a fan, I never think it's going in. <laughs> you know, it's one of those where he shoots, you're like, um, like it was his second year where he was 39%, and you're just like, oh, wow, this guy's, this guy's going to be incredible. But even that year, never once thought the shots were going in. Um, and then even in the playoffs this year, like he was, he shot a great percentage from three in the playoffs. It was his two-point percentage, which was terrible in the playoffs. So I lean more on the... Um, just keep firing them. Like, just keep firing, Jaron. That's what we need you to do. Maybe it's because I've been brainwashed by the, you know, three is greater than two. And <laughs> it's as long as he hits like 30-something percent of them, it'll be fine. Although he's been skirting with that 
not fine uh, three-point shooting percentage, where I think the last two years combined, he's like 30% total on three-pointers. Yeah, I'm looking at his uh, his numbers for his career, his first two years. So we have a three-point shot-making stat. I was actually just talking to you uh, before the podcast about this. Yeah. Uh, so our three-point shot-making is uh, how well you shoot relative to your difficulty, right? Not just the raw number. Um, and he was above average the first two years. Was, was pretty darn good in his sophomore season. Uh, not really going to look at, at at age or his third year because he only played like 200 minutes. Uh, but it was a pretty big negative this year, which isn't great. Uh, but interesting, I'm I'm looking at his three point shot quality throughout his career, and it's quite low, which is surprising because just obviously you would know this better than me. Just normally when a, a three point shooting big is out there, he he's the most part alone. And like you said, the Grizzlies don't have a ton of three-point shooting so they definitely need him to do that but it's just surprising to see a a guy his size have the uh three-point shot quality be as low as it is in his career that based on my memory anecdotally that feels correct he doesn't get a lot of you know it's not a lot of like hey uh, my my defender is not guarding me because i'm a big man i'm standing on the perimeter and I, i have a clean catch and shoot he shoots a lot off of movement And even, like, his trailing, like, uh, you know, semi-transition, like, if he's Mm -hmm. the trailer on the break, a lot of times he catches them and fires them quick, and they're really deep. Yes, yeah. It does feel like, like, I don't know, like, the term bad, a lot of times they feel like bad shots to me. (laughs) But, of course, that falls back to the thing I said earlier, where, based on his form, I never feel like they're going in. So, it's like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the rhythm shot is for him. That's the, the perfect one that will always go in. Um, but it does seem like maybe they could be generating him some cleaner looks. It's not like he's bricking open corner threes over and over and over. Like he's shooting above the break three pointers off movement, off pin downs and things. And yeah, it does feel like he's attempting some some pretty difficult shot attempts. He was someone I really wanted to talk about. He's a player I like a lot. But yeah, when I first popped in the tape for him, there was a lot of those like really deep in transition threes where I was yeah. like, well, my first my first thought was like, well, this guy's confident. So that's good. But then I like yeah. I was like, oh, there's a number of these. <laughs> um, I, I One other indicator that is kind of more of an old fashioned indicator, but he is a very good free throw shooter. Um, and he does sort of a strange like two handed push shot. Uh, which concerned me at first, but then I looked at the uh, the free throw numbers and I was like, well, I guess uh, I guess it's working for him. I think he's like around. Let me pull it up. He's 79 percent for his career, which is in- incredible for a big man. Um, so, yeah, he's a little bit of like he's very interesting. So uh, I like watching him and I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes. And then on the defensive end, uh, I learned what anchor biasing is and uh the first game I really paid attention to him, he had five, it was against the Timberwolves and he had five blocks and it was halfway through the second quarter. <laughs> and I was like, all yeah, right, yeah, my yeah. opinion of this guy's never gonna, it's going, it went through the clouds. It's never coming back down. Yeah, no, I mean, he had a tr- tremendous defensive season and then he had those big, he had a handful of really big block number games in the postseason. Yeah. He's an awesome shot blocker. Part of it too, as like a defensive Grizzlies fan, not like uh, one who likes defense, one who's like, you know, an apologist or saying like, we never get any respect. Part of it to me felt like, hey, the referee stopped calling fouls all the time. Like he <laughs> looks awkward and he, you know, like not to say he doesn't make some boneheaded foul calls. I think the, that Timberwolves first round series was like a who can make the worst foul contest between Jaron Jackson Jr. and Carl Anthony Towns. <laughs> but, so, but so much of what he did on defense would look sometimes 
I don't know, like gangly arms and limbs flying everywhere. And the referees would just call him for fouls his first few seasons. And then last year, it seemed like they would wait and watch and be like, no, that was clean. And so he maybe, because he's a veteran, got to be a little more known that he got the benefit of the doubt on some whistles. And that led to him being in less foul trouble and ending up with a lot more block shots. Yeah, that makes sense. Just two more stats before we move on. He was Mm -hmm. 99th percentile in our rim protection metric, which is very good. And then you talked about his foul trouble. Uh, He was third percentile in foul trouble percentage, which is not where you want to be. So that seems like a place, though, like a a young player that is kind of everywhere on the defensive end. It seems like that foul trouble is something that can be cleaned up as he enters his prime. So I don't think it's something to be uh, of all the things you can be bad at. Right. That seems like maybe one of the more fixable problems. So that doesn't worry me as much because, you know, we've talked about it. Uh, all, all the all the raw stuff is really there. Um, let's talk about Desmond Bain. He had a, a really a breakout year uh, last year. Uh, what do you see out of him? I mean, I am incredibly excited about Desmond Bain. He jumped into that company of, I think, elite shooting guards in the NBA last year. I mean, obviously, his just his percentages were awesome. I believe he was second in the NBA in three-point percentage last year. And he started taking him at more of a volume this year. And not just that, early in his rookie year, the, the thought was, all right, I see why this guy fell in the draft because his handle's pretty loose and he doesn't seem like he's ready for NBA speed, but he's still he's a standstill shooter. Well, Fast forward to last season, all of a sudden, he was very comfortable with the ball in his hands. He was very comfortable scoring at multiple levels, and he became like this really, you know, perfect backcourt partner for John Morant. So, like, uh, the the jump from year one to year two was incredible. That's why John Morant, who actually won most improved player, gave his most improved player trophy to Desmond Bain. He thought he was the more deserving individual. But I think for year three, I mean, I've compare, I'm comparing him to, like, guys like, Michael Finley, Eric Gordon, and that's not even, you know, like opening my mind up to comparing Bain's stats to like Clay Thompson or Reggie Miller or like Michael Red. I, I think it could be a huge season for Desmond Bain, you know, where he could end up scoring well north of 20 points per game, um, assuming that incredible three-point percentage last year wasn't an aberration. Uh, I don't think it was because I'm going to give you a little bit. Uh, we're going to go back into the data. He was uh, mm-hmm. second best in our three-point shot-making stat, uh, only behind Steph Curry. And again, that takes in your difficulty. So sometimes, you know, there'll be guys where you're more left alone because you're like the beneficiary of, of really great shot quality. Like guys that have played with LeBron for the last decade, right? Guys like that. But Desmond Bain, when you have someone performing that well in the three-point shot making, that makes me more confident that like year to year, like that's a really high skill player. So uh, I don't think that that just the raw number there is maybe a one-off. I think he is the real deal. Um, positive on our defensive metrics. So he, I think he's already like... it. I'm not going to, I don't want to call him this like a three and D player because I think he can be a lot more, but let's just say worst case scenario. He stops getting better from here on out his entire career, which I don't think is going to happen. He's already, I would say like a pretty elite three and D player because the three point shot making was, was so unbelievable. Um, And I feel like you said it, like he is, 
these three guys, I feel like perfectly play off each other. Where like Jaw is the creator, gets to the rim, and he needs shooting around him. And you have a shooting big who's flashed some of it, and you'd like to see a, you know some more progression there. And then Desmond Bain is just like super duper high end. Seems like a really really good you know secondary scorer who also provides good defensive value. I feel like this core of three guys is like if it's me, I'm like we're locking these guys up for the next ten years. We're seeing if we can get some rings. No, I agree. I think that's where the Grizzlies front office is at. That's where most of the fan base is at, where we understand that, you know, not only do we get unbelievably lucky ending up with John Morant, but our other pieces around them, it's a perfect, it's just a perfect pairing. Like the way they fit, like you said, you know, Bain is an ideal backcourt partner with John Morant. And then Jaron similarly is, is a perfect partner with job because he's that spacing big who also provides that rim protection. So yeah, those three guys, it, then it becomes maybe easier when you're trying to construct your roster. Cause like, all right, we have these, these difficult spots to fill. Now we just maybe need that ideal. Uh, maybe it's harder to find the ideal small forward, the ideal wing with size who can shoot and play defense. But like the Grizzlies do have this very, very young core. I mean, Jaron's super young. He's younger than Desmond Bain. And uh, and so, like, you do think they're going to lock them all up and they'll be around for a long time. Uh, let's talk about now more kind of the role player. Steven Adams just got an extension. Uh, and I feel like when I watch the playoffs, right, the teams that are good is they have obviously you need your star players. You, you need, you know, really high end talent, the ability to score the ball. But you also need players that are good at things that are not scoring. Right. And I feel like Steven Adams is that because he's literally the best offensive rebounder in the league. He adds, you know, some toughness, some strength, things like that. Uh, you know, you're not going to bully Steven Adams. And I feel like he's a really, really good veteran to fit around these young guys, not only, you know, like I said, where like he can affect the game without scoring, but then also just maybe, you know, from an attitude thing, you know, you, I saw what was, what was the play last year where he just like picked somebody up and just carried them. He away? picked up Tony Bradley. He picked up Tony Bradley, <laughs> carried him away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> When Tony Bradley got 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 entangled with John ja Morant and Stephen did not like it and just yeah carried him carried him off. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like you need you need guys like that on your team to you know keep John ja Morant clean, keep people you know from from maybe you know when someone goes to the rack as much as him, you know stop things from escalating. I feel like he's a really good piece to the puzzle that complements kind of the the uh, maybe emerging big three they might have. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he was a he, he fit like a glove last year. I he fit better than Jonas Valanciunas did on this Grizzlies team. Um, just the, the two man game. So similarly as Jonas Valanciunas and John Morant had a great two man synergy, where basically those guys, Jonas and Stephen Adams, understand their job is to 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 get every one of Jaw's misses. And when Jaw attacks the back the basket and draws all the defenders, they know there's going to be an offensive rebound and I'm going to score it. And Jaw even knows sometimes I've gotten myself in a pickle here. I'm just going to throw it off the glass he doesn't get credit for these assists but they literally are assists where he overlays it on purpose there's been many of them where I think if you watch enough Grizzlies games you're like that was one of the purposeful overlays but of course the they counted as a shot attempt at offensive rebound doesn't really matter but those are on purpose I think the question for me is you know is a player who has the offensive limitations of Steven Adams, is it the ideal fit when you start getting beyond the first round of the playoffs? Like, I don't, I don't know. There, like he, he notably Steven Adams kind of got played off the, 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 the court against the Timberwolves. Um, and then, you know, they eventually went back to him and then he got COVID against the Warriors or he was out with health and safety protocols. So maybe we didn't get the exact answer. Um, and especially like if you pair him and his non-shooting with jaw, 
you know, is that like the ideal partnership? But beyond that, like the going back to the the way he fits so well on, on this team, uh, Stephen Adams and Desmond Bain had a great synergy where I believe Desmond Bain, uh, the person who assisted him the most was Stephen Adams. There was oh. a lot of giving goes, a lot of. Stephen Adams at the elbow, throwing it to a cutting Desmond Bain, and then of course you know Stephen Adams kicking it out to Desmond Bain for three. So like they had an incredible um, symbiotic relationship. Maybe it wasn't symbiotic. Maybe it was parasitic, where Bain got all the benefit. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, Stephen Adams was definitely getting a lot. Like he got a lot more assists than he got in his season in the Pelicans, and it was just basically throwing the ball to Desmond Bain and letting him score. So they worked beautifully together. Yeah, I like uh, I like Steven Adams at the elbow throwing those bounce passes. I feel like he's got a pretty good feel for that. And I, I mean, I, I think you have a point where he's going to be really matchup dependent in the in the postseason. Sometimes he he will be useful. Sometimes he you know maybe not the series for him. But I feel like also there is value in you know in baseball. Like you're you're it's not so much like this anymore. But like maybe 10, 15 years ago, you had that number four, number five starter who was a veteran, who was an innings eater. And I feel like Steven Adams does provide a, a good amount of value in the regular season, which um, obviously not as important, but still does add value. And uh, I don't know, he's a guy I just, uh, I don't know, I'm always rooting for it. <laughs> not really the, the... Oh, he's super fun too. <laughs> I mean, he's a hilarious guy. And yeah, just something about his his disposition and then the way he plays the game and how whenever someone's... Whenever someone asks him just about basketball or like, hey, what are you working on this offseason or what are your goals this year? He's just like, just to play basketball hard and do a good job and <laughs> keep my job. You know, it's like he it's always something funny. And yeah, I, I love what he brings to the locker room as that veteran leader. And is if it is that enforcer, that guy to protect Ja. Um, no, he, he's he's been an awesome addition to the Grizzlies. We don't we don't have a lot of stats for that at Basketball Index, but I'm working on it. Let's we'll see what we can get there. <laughs> should work on it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I want to talk to you about Dylan Brooks. What is that roller coaster like on a nightly basis? Oh, it's wild, man. Uh, I am. I'm a Dylan Brooks convert. Uh, three seasons ago, the the season where they ended up in the bubble. I thought he was out of control and I didn't understand the green light he had on the Grizzlies. I was like, someone needs to say something to him. Why is the coaching staff just letting him do this? And a lot of fans are still there. A lot of Grizzlies fans are still there. Like that you watch him play and you're like, how is he allowed to do this? Why doesn't someone tell him to stop shooting? And I think the general NBA fan or just not Grizzlies fans, that's their impression of Dylan Brooks, like shoots too much way inefficient and he clearly is incredibly inefficient at offense i've been like swayed with the whole like he is this engine for what the grizzlies are and you know he he's led the team in on off net rating swing each of the last two seasons and i don't think that's a coincidence i do think when he's on the court like He's a perfect partner with John. He's a perfect pair, a partner next to to Jaron. And when you we talk about like the, the big three of the Grizzlies now, if it is Jaron and Bain and Morant, guess what? Dylan Brooks fits great next to those guys. And he is an elite defender. And also, this Grizzlies team for the last three seasons has had players who are hesitant to shoot the basketball. They have players who don't necessarily like can't create their own shot. And Dylan's the guy who's like, oh, don't worry, I'll shoot. You need somebody to shoot? Like, I'll shoot. And so, yeah, he fell on his face really loudly in the postseason, in that uh, the game four against the Warriors. But, like, you look at that you look at that game, that was a game where John Morant wasn't available. John Morant was injured. It's a game where Jaron Jackson Jr. was really struggling from the field. 
Who else is going to shoot? Also, Desmond Bain's back was hurt like pretty badly in that series. I think Desmond Bain only got eight shot attempts up in that game as he was dealing with his back issue. Dylan did what, you know, he's like, he did the dirty work. Someone had to do it. Now, the problem is going to be, can he ever turn it off? And the answer to that is probably no. Uh, he, he probably can't turn it off. Like, the reason he's in the NBA is because he has this passion, and that's just the way he plays. But for me, I basically accept it. Like, that's what Dylan's going to be on offense. But he's going to give you everything else on defense. And even those missed shots, I, I believe in the Kobe assist with Dylan. Like, he draws defenders, and he puts it up there, and then, you know, we depend on Steven Adams to get the offensive rebound or Jaron Jackson Jr. or whoever else. Yeah, I uh, he, he's an interesting guy because when I first saw him, I was like, this is a passionate individual. Um, and I wasn't sure, <laughs> like, it, you know, because here's the thing, right? The really like the really good defensive players in the league uh, oftentimes are like they definitely got like some junkyard dog to them. Right. Where it's like, yeah, this person is an aggressive person. I'm not going to mess with this person. And like if things escalate, this player is going to like. he will escalate as far as he needs to to like you know very tough very aggressive uh and i think there is like a bit of intimidation uh on purpose with that which can be can be helpful uh he he's just a player that is interesting because i think i agree with you he is better than people think he is um i think both on offense and defense um because like on offense like he can create a little bit um he he is like one of those guys where like he can score some. It's not always efficient, but like he's able to like create a little bit with the ball where you're like, well, it's not that I never want him to do this. It's just like, are we going yeah. to be able to balance this like in the 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 right kind of area that we need it to be? You know, I, I, it's one of those things. I don't know how you do that. I guess that's like that's a coaching thing. I, I what that comes down to. But one last one last thing, his on ball de- so we have on ball defense, which is just like your defense in isolation. And then we have ball screen navigation, which is how well you handle uh your guy in the pick and roll. And so basically the way we measure this is like just looking at like how often people make it or don't make it isn't the greatest way to do it because like whether you're the closest defender or whatever it is there can be like some kind of like funny business in the numbers. But the way we do this is we look at how often you just suppress people and they don't take as many attempts as they normally do. Uh and then the other thing is do you lower their shot quality? Where it's like if you know if you can get a hand in their face every time, you can make it difficult over time that's probably going to be good defense. And he's a guy that's had an A in in both the isolation and the uh, ball screen navigation. Uh an A in both of those the last 3 seasons. Um and has been really really good handling screens. So I think there's definitely some value there on the defensive end. Yeah, I mean, I legitimately think he's a really good defender. And you have, like, your, your numbers spell it out. But just if you watch the basketball games in the postseason last year, in the Timberwolves series, he did a good job in crunch time guarding Carl Anthony Towns. And then in the next series, he was guarding Steph Curry. Like, you're not going to slow down Steph Curry. <laughs> but if you're watching the games, you're like, what more could a man do? Like, Dylan, like Dylan did a good job. In the previous season, um, they had a stretch coming down the, the, the last game of the year. They played Luka Doncic and the Mavericks, and, like, he forced Luka in a terrible game. And I know it's team defense. It's not the individual. But Dylan was given the job of guarding Luka. Then you go into the, the play-in. You're playing the Spurs, and he's guarding DeMar DeRozan. DeMar DeRozan had a terrible game. And then they end up upsetting the Warriors. And it's like, this guy is an elite defender. 
And then people are like, yeah, yeah, but he's he's shooting 34% from three over the last three seasons. I wish it was 37%. We're like, well, yeah, I too, I too wish he was an, an elite NBA all-star. Like, it's like, yeah, the guy averages as it is. He's a 17-point-per-game scorer who can guard the other team's best player. And, yeah, if he shot 48%, he'd be Paul George. And so it's like – Guys aren't perfect. Aren't perfect. This is the guy we have, and when people are like, "Oh, we want to trade him because he, he does. He shoots us out of basketball games." I always say, just like name the player. What small forward are you talking about? Who's better than Dylan Brooks? And like, you know, there there really aren't that many, and the ones that are, most of them are all stars. And so it's weird. Like, you're not going to find a perfect player, and so I'm I'm basically. Until someone can highlight, like, this guy's clearly better. Um, or who can guard, like, I, like, who are the guys we're talking about who can guard at the same level as Dylan Brooks, who can guard the same positions Dylan Brooks can, who are efficient shooters? Like, Mikhail Bridges? Like, is that, you know, is that it? Like, are, are there other ones? Like, I, yes, I would trade Dylan Brooks for Mikhail Bridges. Call it in. Let's do it. I, I'm in favor of it. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I, this... You know, this is a kind of a peak buying thing. When you're a basketball, when you like work in the basketball industry, right? People kind of come up to you and they, they give you their hot takes, right? All the time. I hear it with Lakers. Yeah. You hear it with the Grizzlies. Yeah. Uh, but for the listeners, a lot of the time there's people that are just like, you know, they should really upgrade here. And you're like, uh, <laughs> yeah. no, yeah, I'm on. Sure. I'm in favor. <laughs> what yeah. do you What do you have in mind? And then they they often have nothing in mind where you're like, exactly. Where it's like, where are you going to where are you going to find where are you going to find well, someone I mean, better than this? There's a, there's a lot of guys you could say that this player is arguably better. And maybe your basketball index tools highlight people who are. But like like Jeremy Grant, like. Is Jeremy Grant better than Dylan Brooks? I'll be honest. I have no idea. I don't, I don't you know? actually know like, they're both They're both pretty solid. And it's like, would, would putting Jeremy Grant on the Grizzlies make them better than having Dylan Brooks? Honestly, I have no idea. But it's like, you're not going to trade just to trade, I don't think. I think the locker room likes him. And I think he does provide this toughness similar to Steven Adams. He provides a different sort of toughness, maybe a hint of uh, off-kilter that that really helps the team. And, uh, you, know, you know, like, as it is now, like, I'm basically, I, I, I defend him a lot. Maybe I'm wrong. Like, maybe they if they trade him for, um, like, a really low-usage guy, this is, like, similar to back in the day the Grizzlies traded a high-usage Rudy Gay for a low-usage Tayshaun Prince, and it made the Grizzlies better. Like, maybe there is a situation out there where they just need a defender who actually doesn't shoot at all, and it will benefit the team. It will end up causing Jaw to shoot even more or Desmond Bain to shoot even more or Jaron Jackson Jr. to get better looks. I'm not... I'm not um, dismissing that possibility that perhaps I'm wrong and getting a guy in here who, whatever, instead of shooting 15 times per game, shoots eight. Maybe that would make the Grizzlies better, but I still have trouble finding like exactly who that player would be if you moved on from Dylan. Uh, that's so I just pulled up the Jeremy Grant Brooks thing because that was a good poll. They were virtually the exact same player in overall impact uh, last year. Uh, like almost ex- like two, like, like 0.02 points uh, per 100 possessions different. So essentially the same player. And then going back to 2021, uh, also almost exactly the same player. So I, I guess if you trade Dylan Brooks for Jeremy Grant, it's a it's a push in terms of total impact. And uh, yeah. I guess you get maybe some like slightly different skill sets, but uh, impact wise, they're essentially the same guy. And for at least one more year, Dylan makes way less. Oh uh, yeah, so that's definitely that's definitely going to sway it in uh, in his favor. 
Uh, all right. Well, honestly, I could probably we could just go down the rest of the roster and keep talking about this. But we are trying to keep this these previews uh, under 30 minutes. We're already over that, but I've had a great time talking to you, Keith. Um, yes, yeah, I'll be honest. Uh, let's uh, what, what is your Twitter handle? And do you have anything else to plug? Uh, my Twitter handle is fast break break. If you're a Grizzlies fan, just listen to grits and grinds. If you, if you like entertaining basketball talk, listen to fast break breakfast. We cover the whole league in a not too serious yet still hopefully intelligent fashion. All right, Keith Parrish. Uh, thanks for getting us up to speed on the state of the Grizzlies. My name is Taylor and we'll see you on the next episode of the basketball index podcast. <laughs>